Again, it's good to be able to be with you tonight, and I appreciate you braving the weather and coming out and sharing in our study of God's Word together this evening. I, I was in a meeting in, with, where a friend of mine preached in, uh, near Fort Worth, Texas. Feels like eons ago now, but anyway, he, it, it was raining one night of the meeting, and he was all depressed, and I couldn't figure out, and then finally he confided. He said, Texans won't drive in the rain. They won't come, and they didn't. Uh, it was the strangest thing I'd ever witnessed, but, uh, but they, they, they literally had the smallest night they'd ever had during that week, the night it rained, um, and that was just very an odd thing, but you didn't mind it at all. You came, you desired to, to sing praises to God and to pray before his throne today and to study from his word, I thank you. I appreciate you being here, and I hope that we can share some things with you tonight uh, that'll be of strength and encouragement to you. We're trying to make some practical applications Really, I, I guess technically out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but the series is not based out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The series is really based out of chapter 12, and, and uh oh, I've, uh, maybe my remote's not going to work either. There it is. Okay, good deal. I was scared. Boy, I tell you, I, I preached from those charts. We would have had the shortest sermon of the week if that wouldn't have come up. We would have been in a an interesting set of circumstances. My memory's decent, but I'm old now. It's hard. Uh, anyway, we're basing our study out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, where Paul has that great lengthy conversation, and I won't re-preach to yesterday morning's introductory sermon, but I just want to share with you that, you know, Paul has all this divisive conversation with them, right? He's not being divisive. They are, and he's trying to encourage them out of that. They're dividing over who baptized them. They're dividing over various things as it relates to, to marriage. They're dividing over in chapter 12 over who has the greatest spiritual gifts and which ones are more important and who's the best in the body of Christ and that's kind of the conversations they're having and finally Paul comes to the end of that narrative in chapter 12 and verse 31 it says listen let me tell you about a more excellent way there's a better way to view these things there's a better way to live and conduct and act and he says then beginning in chapter verse 1 of chapter 13 that the real answer to all of the divisiveness that was so challenging them and created such great problems for the church in Corinth was that love needed to become their motivator. If love was the motivating factor behind all that they said, did, and thought, that everything else would get better. And so he began this process of then telling them what love really meant. We talked yesterday about the idea that God is love, and if God is the epitome, if God is the definition of what love is, then he gets to define it. God gets to determine what love actually means, and then Paul does that through chapter 13, and that's where we are in our study this week. And tonight, what I want to do is share with you what I'm going to define as love-depleting challenges. There are some negative things said within the narrative. There are some things very positive within the narrative that tell us kind of what love is, but Paul does at least spend a few moments in the narrative telling us what love isn't. And the kinds of things that love actually are things that rob us of the love that God would desire. Just look at these two verses to start our study together this evening. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, read with me, beginning in verse 4. He said, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely, and it does not seek its own, and it is not provoked or not easily provoked and it thinks no evil 
And so what I want to talk to you tonight out of those verses is that there's a handful of things that Paul wants us to realize that will rob us and deplete us of the very love that God desires for each of us to experience. And I've kind of summarized them a little bit just for our study purposes because the, the series was never really intended to be kind of this definitive approach towards the words that Paul uses. It's more of categorical kind of thinking. And so let's talk about these in kind of categories as we work through our study this evening. And one first thing I want to do, and we've been applying this to family, to the church family, to our friendships and relationships throughout our study. And families should be cautious of the attitudes that will absolutely rob them of the joy and happiness God desires. Jealousy and pride can create tremendous challenges and difficulty within families. Proper love doesn't allow for that. Proper love does not allow for jealousy and pride to begin to interfere in the equation. Notice the proverb writer, and we'll spend a lot of time this week in the Proverbs because of the nature of our study together. But in Proverbs 27 and in verse 4, so if you want to grab your Bibles or your device, I'm not offended by that, by the way. Use whatever it is you have that will let you study along with us in the Scriptures. But in Proverbs 27 and verse 4, he says, Wrath is cruel. And anger a torrent, but who is able to stand before jealousy? It's kind of an interesting question, isn't it? Who's able to stand or withstand the challenges and difficulties that jealousy and pride can present within family structures? And you might think to yourself, well, whoever had to encounter those kinds of things? But the fact of the matter is there's a lot of descriptions, even within Scripture, that talk about how jealousy uncontrolled will lead to greater challenges and obviously, eventually, the absence of love itself. When I, when I think about this concept and I think about the things that it might present, I obviously think about the life of Joseph. You go over into Genesis chapter 37 and you notice some of the things that, that Joseph had to encounter and some of the things that, that related to him and his brothers. I think we can appreciate that jealousy was a problem. And so much so that it was really one of the motivating factors that caused Joseph to end up in the situations that he was in. Genesis chapter 37, let's begin reading together in verse 4. Genesis 37 and verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, we could have a conversation, a long conversation maybe, about exactly what is this, you know, how is this happening? How is it possible that this father showed so much favoritism, which I'm going to take them at their word that he did, that he showed so much favoritism towards Joseph that it has angered and provoked his brothers to such a jealousy that they're about to engage in the things that they're going to do to him here in just a moment. It's amazing to think that this jealousy raged so much that they couldn't even talk nice to him, let alone do nice things for him or act kindly towards him. They were so frustrated over the, and jealous over how their father treated him as opposed to them that they couldn't even speak peaceably to him. That's what jealousy does within families. We let jealousy rage and we let jealousy rise up. It can create circumstances where family members won't even talk to one another. And love is being depleted every step of the way. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. 
So he said to them, Please bear this dream which I have dreamed. And there were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and uh, also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaf stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. <laughs> you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. And, that's, and I'm okay with that. If you stop me afterwards and say, I don't know whether that's really right or not, I'm okay. But I want you to think about something. I don't know if I'm Joseph that I tell the brothers about the dream. There's already trouble in the family, right? There's already difficulty. They won't even talk nice to him. They don't want anything to do with him the way the father has treated him. Now he comes to them. He's willing to speak to them. And what does he tell them? He says, you know what, guys? I had a dream. And my dream said I'm better than you. That's my translation, by the way. But it's what he said, right? My, tr my sheaf was greater than yours. In other words, I'm going to have authority and power over you. That's the imagery. I'm going to be over. Now, maybe you might argue that, well, he's just telling them in prophetic form of what ultimately is going to come when he's in Egypt and they'll come and have to... I get that, right? That's true. I get that. But I'm just wondering in my mind if, they, if he knows that they already have this jealousy and envy towards him and it has already caused such strife and challenge within that family structure, why bring it up? Why not just know it to yourself and leave it there? And my point, friends, is this. Sometimes the best thing that we can do within families is not say anything. If we know it's only going to promote greater jealousies, envies, strife, division, and hurtful things. Now, if, if truth is involved and we're trying to lead somebody out of sinful practices and those kinds of things, I'm not telling you or suggesting that we need to be silent on those matters and just let people behave how they want to and lead their souls into consequence because of it. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying there are probably a lot of times within our family structures that we just promoted or added fuel to a fire that was already kindled because we just couldn't resist ourselves. We had to say something. And we've just created a greater problem than there needed to be. I don't know. Again, you can correct me on the way out. I, I, I won't be mad at you. Uh, it'll be fine. But, but I just wonder, why did he tell them? But he did. And now they hate him even more than they did before. Then he dreamed still another dream, verse 9. And he told it to his brothers. <laughs> And said, look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. And so he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him. Ah. His father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I, your brothers, indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? Now we all know the prophecy, right? It, it, yes. <laughs> Ultimately, yes. The answer to that is Yes. And these dreams are obviously divine. They're coming from God. But even the father recognizes, Joseph, you may be going a little far here. This is going to create even greater problems, and he rebukes him as it relates to it. Now, here's the point I want us to make out of that. We, there's undoubtedly some favoritism that the Father is showing. We could look through the history on time to spend all on that. But there's undoubtedly some favoritism that's being shown that's creating some of this jealousy that's there. But the Father didn't always, Jacob didn't always favor Joseph. Here's a specific example where he didn't. Sometimes in families, we assume, we perceive, or we create in our minds jealousies because we think somebody else always gets the better. Somebody else always gets something better than I got. 
somebody else always gets treated better than I got treated somebody and we create it as if the father never would ever say a coarse word or a challenging thought or would never correct Joseph in anything that's not true he absolutely did in this circumstance so his brothers, verse 11, began to envy him, but his father kept the matter in mind. And then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem, and we know the rest of that story, right? The jealousy and the anger that had been kindled against Joseph had reached such a peak, such a tremendous difficulty, that now they're willing to just put him to death. Well, let's think on that for a little while. But while we're thinking on that, some of them decide, oh, no, let's sell him. Oh, that's a much better idea, <laughs> right? But that's what jealousy does. And friends, when jealousy rears itself, love leaves. There's no room for it. When jealousy is there, love leaves because there's no room for you. It's hard to be jealous over somebody and love them at the same time. It's hard to have those inward thoughts about those things and be envious of what others have or the circumstances they are in and let love reside in that same moment. It's hard. And so it's no wonder Paul says, listen, love doesn't do that. Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't get jealous. Love doesn't let pride enter the picture and create conflict and challenge because it will only rob us of the love that God desires for us to experience. Even in some unusual circumstances, you can see what it can do to situations. Go to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16 and verse 1. Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. So now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarah. Pause. Culturally, we struggle with this. I get it. it does, these kinds of things, when you read them in Scripture, they just don't compute sometimes because it's hard for us to even understand that, that even culturally that would be permissible. And in some ways it was not permissible, especially in the idea that that was not the promise God had made. That was not the way he intended it for it to be fulfilled. He intended for Abram and Sarah to have a child that would ultimately bless the nations that would come after him. And they have now circumvented that. My friends, I realize they may have been disappointed or they're impatient or whatever you want to call it. But Sarah was unwise for setting this idea in motion, but I don't hold her solely responsible. Abram was unwise for following through with it. He should have been wiser than that. But let's see what happens. So, he heeds her voice. Now verse 3, Then Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, gave her to her husband, Abram's, to be his, his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarah said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. <laughs> How about your wrongs be upon both of you? because of the choices and decisions that you've made, but she is unwilling to accept any kind of responsibility here. And what I set in motion is really your fault, Abram, 
And I gave my handmaid or my maid unto your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord's judge between you and me. Let the Lord decide which one of us is the greater accountability here is kind of what she says. My friends, I'm simply trying to illustrate to you out of this odd and unusual circumstance what jealousy did to that marriage. Now, number one, don't anybody even think about doing what Abraham and Sarah did. Number one, right? But let's take a broader application from it. When we as married couples, when we, if we're married and we do things that promote jealousies within those marriages, we're creating love-depleting situations. How in the world did Abraham think he was going to come out of this situation and not have problems? How did he convince himself that this was just going to be perfectly fine and there weren't going to be any issues whatsoever over this? He should have been wiser than that. How did Sarah convince herself that this was a perfectly suitable manner by which to accomplish having a child? Their very actions promoted jealousy between them. And by the way, the world's still dealing with it. That decision is still affecting the world today. And the jealousies that came between them because of it. And Ishmael gets sent away and an entirely different nation comes up that wasn't part of the plan of God. The purposes that he had designed from them. Be careful what we do in marriage. I, I, I want to be cautious to not do anything or make choices and decisions that, that is going to make my wife jealous of, of, of anything or, or vice versa because I know it will rob us of love. Not every family environment, friends, is ideal, by the way. This is a challenged family circumstance we just read about in Genesis chapter 16. And sometimes when families aren't, aren't aren't painted by Norman Rockwell. It's very easy for jealousies to begin to crop into those situations and create difficulties that rob those families of love. Not, not everyone has this perfect picture. Not everyone has the same set of situations. I told you yesterday that I was very blessed with great in-laws and never had any issues with in-laws. Never was an issue but it is for some and jealousies can come up I, I, I know of people that are, have been married for 25 30 years and they're still talking 30 years later they're still talking about how their parents treated one child better than another child in that family 30 years removed from ever leaving that house and it still hurt it was still part of their thinking they'd yet to release it and let it go and it was creating a strain within that family nucleus where love wasn't even thought of because of the jealousies and envies that were still there among those people. I wish I could, I could promise you an idealistic, poetic kind of family circumstance that, just, that had every benefit and blessing known to man to, to do nothing but promote love and peace and, and kindness throughout all of your days but not all of us have those experiences and sometimes there are jealousies and difficulties within that equation that create a depletion of the love 
Jealousy and envy can deplete the love necessary to offer forgiveness, not just in families, but even to friends, neighbors, loved ones, brethren. I think about Matthew chapter 5. And I think, about, I think about pride in particular as it relates to this passage. And I think about how, how we, we can become so proud that we're not, even, we're not even willing to admit that we made a mistake. That we were wrong. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 23, he said, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Can I offer you a quick thought as it relates to that text? If I'm establishing priorities and my options are resolve a conflict with my brother or go to worship, go resolve the conflict first. That's what he said. That's what he means. When he says, if you bring your gift before the altar, what do you think he's regressing? And when he talks about bringing a gift before the altar, he's talking about coming to worship. You come before the Lord, you come to the altar of the Lord to bring your sacrifice and worship before him. And on your way, you realize that there is an unresolved circumstance that you have with a brother, a sister in Christ, somebody that you need to address some situation with. You set that gift down and you go redress that situation and then come and bring that gift before the altar of God. He wants us to resolve the conflict first kind of hard to serve God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind when we've got conflict over here we've never addressed and you know what happens is the pride enters the picture well he started it that's okay if you're six not 56 we, we need to get past those things Pride interferes, but it, it rears itself. Oh, if he would come to me first, that's not what Matthew 5 said. Matthew 18 does, by the way. There's another text that deals with that aspect. But, but Matthew 5 is talking about me. He's talking about what I should do. And there needs to be enough love in me and, and, and enough willingness to get rid of the pride that might be interfering with the equation that if there's something that needs to be addressed with somebody else, I would do that and recognize that even my worship is being hindered because of it. I've got to have enough love to get past those things. But too often, pride interferes and it hinders that brotherly love that God calls us to and that Paul even educates us concerning in Romans chapter 12. Notice with me in verse 10 of Romans chapter 12, very simple thought. But he just simply said, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. Pride is going to make that really hard. To have the kind of brotherly love that gives preference to others is really hard when I'm very proud. We're going to talk about truth and love before this week's over. I believe in truth. I believe that there, there's a need for us to pursue it and to seek it and, and to preach it. But when it comes to matters of opinion and liberties and expediencies and things of that sort, let's get the pride out of the way 
And let's be brotherly and love one another and actually give preference to another. To actually say, I don't have to have my way. I don't have to have my opinion. I don't even have to speak my opinion. I don't even have to have an opinion. (laughs) Pride tells me I do. I'm trying not to get on my... Everybody back home in Peyton City will tell you, Brian will get on a soapbox at some point about social media. (laughs) I'm telling you it's going to destroy us. I'm telling you it is. I'm not trying to be a prophet. I'm just being sincere about it. It's going to inwardly destroy us if we're not careful. We don't always have to go, I can't believe he said that. I'll tell him. That's pride. That's not love. Oh, can you believe she did that? I got to tell Susie she did that. Oh, no, I forgot. Oh, oh, I just posted it on my public feed. Oh, no. I just meant to send that to so. Don't send it to so-and-so or your public feed. That's not a store, by the way, for farmers, for those who don't have social media. (laughs) Right? There's a lot of pride. A lot of arrogance, a lot of jealousies are promoted because of social media. It's so easy to sit supposed in anonymity and say all kinds of things. Pride will hinder brotherly love. It'll hinder the, the relationships that God desires for us and it'll stop me or hinder me from actually giving preference to somebody else. Saying, you know what, I don't have to have my way. I don't have to have my thoughts heard. I don't have to be speaking here on this particular situation. It's fine to just let somebody else have what they desire in that circumstance. Those are choices that we're going to have to make. Selfishness is something else. Jealousy and pride will deplete the love in families and relationships and within churches, friendships, and other circumstances, but selfishness also depletes love. Let me suggest this to you, by the way. I'll step out of the way of the screen. Selfishness is at the core of many family challenges. Adultery, fornication, divorce, financial issues, write the list. I can almost make you a guarantee that nine times out of ten, some act of selfishness is involved in the process. There's an act of selfishness going on that made me choose that path rather than a path of love and appreciation for my spouse or others and my family members. I grow weary. I'll be honest with you. I grow weary of having to sit across the table from folks who are the victims of selfish behaviors. From men and women alike who stood before audiences such as this and made a vow to love, honor, and cherish till death do we part or until she does something I don't like or he does something I don't like because that's the way they've lived it out. Selfishness rears itself in all of these kinds of situations and then because of the selfish acts of others then anger can become part of the equation as well as we read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and it creates even more difficulties in those environments. And they're in direct contrast to what Jesus would desire. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 23... 
In Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. I almost read to you John 9 and it made no sense to me either if I had done that. Luke chapter 9 verse 23. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after him, to come after me, Jesus speaking, says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. May I suggest to you tonight that self-denial, as Jesus asks of us as followers and disciples of his, will actually go a long way to helping us in our family relationships as well. When I am willing to deny self, when I'm willing to recognize that there are some things that I should be restricting away from myself, there are some choices and behaviors and, and actions that don't need to be part of my, my walk as a faithful believer, they'll help me when I recognize that to be the kind of husband and father and friend and co-worker that I need to be as well. We, we become very self-absorbed. Our world, again, soapbox time, our world allows for that. That is my page. This is my space. Is that a thing anymore? I don't know. It may have gone away. But you understand what I'm saying, right? Everything's about me. I get to say what I want. I've had people say, I can say whatever I want because that's my page. No, you can't say whatever you want because the Lord's watching. You can't just say anything because other people could be hurt by what you're saying. And just because it happens to have your name associated with some account or some page that you're operating and running doesn't give us license to say or do or act in any way we want. Just because we got angry over somebody or something and we've decided to lash out, sometimes we need to deny self. Sometimes we need to deny that urge. Sometimes we need to deny that thought process. Sometimes we need to be self-denying. When it comes to that, to that desire to want to say and act and behave in so many ways. Marriages need more self-denial and more interest in preferring one another. Because that's what will promote love. That's what will lead us to the kind of love that God would desire for us. And friends, let me suggest that the church needs that as well. You may be familiar with this text over in 3 John. It's only got one chapter. That's why you see verses there instead of a chapter. But in 3 John, beginning in verse 5, you, you probably recall this, this man that's spoken of here in this text. 3 John chapter, or verse 5. See, I did it again. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever... You do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. John is commending them initially. He's commending them for their love for others and their willingness to even send forth preachers and to, to continue to present the gospel and the relationship they had. There's good things happening because of these folks, but there's a problem in the way. He said, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence, who refuses to deny self, just read it that way. 
that's the opposite, right? Or they're similar, I should say, of preeminence. The idea of preeminent is a guy who doesn't ever deny self. It's always about him. It's always about him. And even when for a moment you think it isn't, he found a way to trick you. Because <laughs> when you circle the wagons back, it still ended up being about him. He said, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Can you imagine a guy that was so self-absorbed that he wouldn't even receive the apostle John? He wouldn't even receive John. He's that controlling. He's that interested in his own thoughts and his own ways and his own purposes and the only... And John says, therefore, if I come, I'll call him to mind his deeds, which he does, priding against us with malicious words and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to putting them out of the church. <laughs> Diotrephes was deciding who belonged to God and who didn't, not God. You see that? You want to start robbing a church of love, then let a guy like that run loose for a while. Let, let Diotrephes run loose where everything's about him and his thoughts and what he believes and what he thinks and what his decisions are. Everything's always about him to the point where you're not even looking to Scripture as to whether somebody's in fellowship with God or not. You're just looking at Diotrephes and saying, can we accept this guy or not? Is he okay with you? Can you imagine? That's where they had gotten and gotten so bad that Diotrephes convinced that church that don't let John come. We can't have the apostle coming here. Isn't that crazy? That he had gained that much power. Friends, be careful of a man who won't deny self in anything. Be careful of him. Because he will rob churches, he will rob families, he will rob anybody and everybody he can of all the love that exists because he's more interested in himself than anything else. And he didn't care what he destroys in the path. He doesn't care what havoc he wreaks. He doesn't care what devastation is wrought. All he cares about is himself. That's not love. That's the kind of thing that depletes love. That's the kind of behaviors and choices that lead us away from love. And then the anger begins to set in, and we've got another equation to deal with. James taught us in James chapter 1 to do what? To be slow to anger. You know what? What I appreciate about that, let me read it to you real quick, and then... I'm but I want to share some thoughts with you about this. How anger can deplete love from various relationships and circumstances. But in James chapter 1 verse 19, he said, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Friends, there's a proper place for righteous indignation. I believe that to be true. I believe there's a proper place for righteous indignation. And may I suggest to you that generally speaking, it is always involved around dealing with sinful behaviors. There's a, a rightful frustration that should come when people are behaving in sinful fashion. I get that, righteous indignation. Jesus was the best at that, right? Because he could see it perfectly. We're, we will be imperfect in the process, but he could see it and he dealt with it. I mean, he would look those Pharisees in the eyes how many times? It says hypocrites. You'll do all kinds of things, but then you'll deny the very truthfulness of something that's right in front of you. 
But here's the point I want us to recognize. Love is slow to wrath. You ever carry a chip on your shoulder about something? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> but have you ever carried a chip on your shoulder? You understand what I mean by that? It's a phrase come. You're just looking, right? You got it right there. And you're displaying it. And you display it because you're hoping somebody knocks it off because you want, well, you want to be angry. I want to be upset. I want to say a few things. I want to share what I think about a couple things. Knock that off for me. Give me a reason. That's not slow to anger. <laughs> That's looking to be angry. That's looking to be angry. James wants us to realize that there might be a proper place for anger and wrath. God even has that. But you don't get there quickly. You should arrive there as a last resort, not the first resort. Too many of us have what we would often call a short fuse. We're just ready to be upset right now. Angry right now. Over anything. And you know what's sad? I have witnessed a lot of folks over the years, and men, I'm sorry, mostly men, but it, it's not solely men, but it, mostly who are the nicest guys in the world to anybody and everybody but their own family. They would be as patient and as long-suffering as anything when it came to those outside of their own household, but when it came to their own household, they were short-fused, ready to be angry, walked around upset and frustrated all the time. We're destroying our families, men. We're destroying them. We're robbing them of love because we're behaving them this way. When we're so quick to be angry over anything and everything and always upset and always frustrated and always disappointed and just... And that's what our families see, but the guy down the street just sees this wonderful, jovial, just wonderful guy that never seems to be upset about anything. I'm not, I'm not permissing it in some senses to, for that guy either. But, but let me suggest to you, if you had a choice to make of who gets the best of you, how about your family first? How about save the frowns for the guy down the street that you bump into once every six months and let's have the joy and the love and the peace in the household with the people that you see every day? And then maybe if I got better at it at home, maybe if it was my pattern at home, it would become my pattern outside the home as well. Slow to anger. I'm not going to get angry just at the drop of a hat. I'm not going to get upset and angry at every little thing. And in the process, I'm going to remember that anger generally promotes some of the worst things I've ever said in life. The proverb writer said in Proverbs 15, Proverbs 15, 1, he said, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. <laughs> the way I say things, the way I approach things, the words that I use can promote an anger that depletes love, and we need to be cautious. In fact, the results of that, Proverbs 18, 19, tell me are hard to overcome. One harsh word... One angry moment may plague me for a long, long time. 
Now, friends, I'm not saying that you can't be forgiven, and I'm not saying that God won't cleanse you, and I'm not saying that we can't improve and all those kinds of things. I get it. But I'm saying is the Proverbs teach us very clearly that a brother offended is hard to win back. When we've chosen words and things outside of love, and we've said things in the moments of anger and frustration, and we've used those kinds of things that cause greater difficulties for folks, it's hard to win that moment back. We may never have opportunities in some ways. But love overcomes the anger, right? When, when I've let, let love be the motivator in my heart, in my mind, and I, I'm, I'm letting that love of God motivate and, and captivate me at every turn, then I'm going to be able to overcome anger. I'm not going to get upset all the time. I'm not going to have a short fuse. I'm not going to be angry just because somebody said something the wrong way or parked their car the wrong way at the... We get upset over everything. And so let me give you, as we close, a couple of quick thoughts that maybe can help us overcome anger so that we can get the love back into the equation. First of all, let me suggest to you that the next time you're angry, rather than saying harsh words or doing things that you're going to regret regret later, how about serving? What a novel idea. Well, it's not really novel, is it? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. John chapter 13, I'll give you the fast, abridged history lesson prior to this moment. This is, this is Jesus right after supper, right, in John 13. Luke 22 records for us that his disciples, just before this moment, are arguing who's the greatest in the kingdom. So he's got Judas Iscariot on one side, who's willing to betray him. On the other side, he's got 11 other guys who are trying to decide who's the best apostle. It's like two preachers trying to argue who's the best, and they usually decide that on who leads the opening prayer based on who leads the closing prayer. (laughs) Nonsense, right, in other words? It's nonsense. But that's what their disciples are doing. I have no idea what kinds of arguments they're making, but that's the dispute at hand. They're fighting and fussing over who's the greatest in the kingdom. So in the midst of that, Jesus gets up, girds himself with a towel, and washes their feet. The next time you get angry, wash feet. Don't say things you're going to regret. Don't behave in ways that you can't retract. Wash feet. Do the laundry. Wash the dishes. Clean her car that she's been asking you to do for 32 months. Right? Find a way to serve. Jesus gets up and girds himself with time. He washes the feet of all of them. And notice what he says in verse 14 at the end of all that. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. See, he didn't say I've given you a literal thing that you should all do. He says I've given you an example. This is what I'm trying to show you what you should be doing. Find an act of service. And yes, find an act of service that wouldn't necessarily be a pleasant act of service. I don't know about you, but I'm not necessarily getting in the line of jobs of having to wash the feet of people who have been walking these dirty, dusty trails in Jesus' day. But that's what he does. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you, some translations say, happy are ye if you do them. 
The next time you're angry and you want to show love instead of anger, serve. Find a way to serve, to be of help, to be of aid, to be of encouragement to somebody else. One last thought. When angry, be accountable. Even when maybe in your mind the anger is justified. Behavior, situations, circumstances that, that led you there have, have created difficulties and challenges that are hard to overcome. And maybe some around you just simply refuse to make any changes whatsoever that's continuing to create the love-depleting situation. Verse 18 of Romans 12. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. I can't control you, you can't control me. But I can control me. I can decide to live peaceably. I can decide to show love rather than anger. I can show love rather than being selfish and jealous over circumstances. I can make that decision. And we need to spend less time worrying about what the other guy is doing and just recognize that I am the first layer of accountability. I have the accountability to love as God is love. I have the accountability to love others, love my family, love my husband or my wife, love my children, love my friends and my in-laws. And yes, that coworker that's been driving me crazy for 32 years. As much as in me, I'm going to live peaceably with every last one of them. I'm going to deny self at times to make it happen. I'm going to avoid selfish ambitions in order to make sure I can, I can act and behave in the right loving ways. I'm going to do everything I can because I want to be in the image of God, yesterday's lesson. I want to be the love that God has, exempt, has given unto me and exemplified before me through His Son. That's what I want to be. And I may not win everybody to that idea. I may not be able to get everybody to follow in that same path, but I'm going to choose that path. And I'm going to step... I'm going to stop living by anger and frustration and the things that create such difficulties and hardships along the path. Friends, there are a lot of things that take the love out of life, out of families, out of the brotherhood. Let's learn what those are and avoid them so that we can keep the love that God desires for each of us within it. You've listened well. You actually heard the combined sermon tonight. So they'll get a little easier maybe in terms of content. I had written this series of studies in eight lessons and with only seven opportunities this week, I had to find somewhere within the structure to do some combining. So I cut some things out and threw some things together. Some have asked me about this series, about whether you could have a copy of all of it. I'll share that with you. I brought a master copy. You're welcome to make as many copies of that as you'd like because there are several things that I just had to take out of the equation. But I, you've listened well, and I thank you for that this evening. If you're subject to the gospel in some way, if we could encourage you tonight, what greater act of love could any of us see and witness than, than the love that Jesus showed to us upon the cross? We have the perfect picture of love when you, when you recognize the, the, the salvation that we can experience is all because Jesus loved us more than himself. Jesus, who 
did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus, who was above the angels, made himself a little lower than the angels in order to bring salvation and hope to us. If you're subject to those promises and desire to find remission of sins through baptism today, desire to die with Jesus and have those sins buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life, or, or return to him and begin to serve him faithfully once again if you've left that, that first relationship, if we can encourage you, help you, strengthen you in, in the love that you have for the Lord, when we'd invite you to come while we stand and while we sing.